Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Louise Shorter, founder and chief executive of charity Inside Justice, about their work undertaking casework investigations on behalf of people who claim they've been wrongfully convicted. My name is Louise Shorter. I founded the registered charity called Inside Justice uh, 10 years ago now, and I'm the chief executive of it. And why did you set Inside Justice up? What was the need? The charity was set up because I worked for many years on um, miscarriage of justice cases uh, that have become television programmes. So I used to work at the BBC and we and I'd, I'd specialised in making TV programmes about claims of innocence by serving prisoners. Um, and I'd seen that a, a huge amount of good work was done by media organisations to support people in prison who claimed they were innocent. They reached a time when those sorts of programmes became unfashionable in the media. So at one point in this country, we had programmes like Rough Justice and Trial and Error and Dispatches and Panoramas would, would World in Action on ITV would spend a lot of a lot of time investigating cases and making programmes about people in prison who claimed they're innocent. That those programmes became unfashionable. It, it, one TV executive at one point said that they were a bit nineteen eighties. Right. Um, they they just gone out of fashion with with what TV viewers wanted. So if we sort of you know thinking about the nineteen nineties, it was all about house makeover programmes and gardening programmes and you know the kind of programming that was frankly easy to turn around. You know, easy to make, cheap to make, got lots of viewers um, and, and ticked lots of, of boxes for TV executives. People at the BBC, the, the uh, commissioners, TV bosses at the BBC, always found, and 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 all other uh, TV outlets for that for that matter, always found that these programmes were hard to make. So quite often you might work on a case if you were um, working on a TV investigative strand for some months, and you might find evidence that showed that the person in prison truly was guilty. Um, they'd just been, you know, having having the TV team on for a while, hoping that they might find some kind of loophole that would get their conviction quashed or or the TV programme might find that there was nothing new that they'd found that would really make a good compelling programme. So it was always difficult programme making and also you know when you start to think about things like the victim issues you know what will the victim's family think about a a programme if it's suddenly saying that the person in prison 
may may be innocent after all. Yeah, so it's quite high risk. Yeah, high risk, difficult, full of headaches, expensive. Yeah, lots of reasons for TV executives to think, you know, do you know what, perhaps we'll just sort of leave this to one side for now. Exactly. Let's film a house being done up. Bit more relaxing. <laughs> exactly. All that kind of. So understandable um, that it had fallen out of favour with a lot of media outlets. And so um, I was contacted by by the editor, the then editor of the prisoners newspaper Inside Time, which you can read online. Um, it's a newspaper for prisoners and does a fantastic job. I was contacted by them and, and asked, you know, what happens to prisoners now if they're innocent? Because in the old days you could go to a media outlet and you may well be able to get help from investigative journalists. But what happens now to those individuals? Um, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which is the government funded body that investigates cases that had been set up but there was there was criticism that it was severely underfunded um, and, and was facing difficulties with some of its casework and so we started looking at that stage to think well actually hang on a minute what where does somebody go if you imagine that if you've just been wrongly convicted of something it's at that time that you're that your funding for legal aid is going to come to an end. So you're probably not going to be able to get access to a solicitor or a barrister anymore when, as soon as the guilty conviction is in, because that's when legal aid stops giving out. That's when it stops paying for, for legal representation. And that's the point when you are going to be the loneliest, facing the most difficulties. And that's the point when all of the professional support that you've had is going to evaporate. And so when, when we realised that there was also this void now because TV programmes and uh, investigative reporters weren't looking at the cases in, in the in the way that they used to it seemed obvious that the thing to do was to try and get charitable funding to get the the charity off the ground so when i when we started thinking about it i i remember receiving a call from the the editor of inside time the prisoners newspaper saying maybe we should try and get charitable funding and i thought he was absolutely off his rocker to be honest i couldn't imagine that there would be any sort of trusts or foundations out there that would think that this was <laughs> the kind of thing that should be invested yeah. in that people should give money to um and it took us three years from when the first the idea was first floated to me it was then three years of, of some sort of serious slog of going around foundations and trusts to try and make something which most people probably haven't even really thought about um the kind of issue that would make them want to think that you know, actually, yes, this is something that we should give money to so that these people can be helped. Yeah, because it must be quite difficult to work out whether a case is genuine or not within the organisation. What's your sort of sifting process to think, right, we're absolutely onto something here. This guy or woman is clearly innocent. You know, how do you do that? Because then I see the problem of charitable money maybe being used on a case that then actually it turns out that they are guilty. Absolutely, yeah, and it is it is the biggest risk, and it is it is one of one of the hardest. It's not the hardest, but it is one of the hardest things. Um, the way that we go about it is that we have a, a sifting process. So we have a strict criteria. First of all, we um, we say that people usually need to have at least five years left to serve in custody, and that's not because we think if someone's been convicted and, and received a lesser sentence, then they're no less deserving. It's just a a, a a nod to the fact that the criminal justice system. 
works very, very slowly. And we need to direct our resources towards people who are going to spend the next 5, 10, 20 years in prison unless some somebody finds something which shows they haven't done it. So we're just trying to direct our resources where it's most needed. We tend to take cases where the conviction is built on more than one person's word against another. Um, so sex offence cases are really difficult for us because that often comes down to what one person said versus what another person said. And there's right. absolutely no way that we are ever going to knock on somebody's door and say, are you sure that, you know, the allegations that you made are true? You know, we are what we want to do is we want to direct expertise and objective evidence where it has not yet been deployed. The biggest asset at the charity is that we have an advisory panel of experts. It's made up of, of barristers, forensic scientists, a former judge, former police staff, police investigators. And so all of those people are looking constantly to think, is there something in this case which hasn't been done before that we could do now if if there was funding available, that the criminal justice system really ought to be doing, legal aid funding ought to be funding, but because there have been cuts by repeated governments on, on that fund, is, that, that work isn't going to get done. So we make it possible for that work to be done completely free uh, to see whether or not there's objective evidence. So we're, okay. we're always looking to see what was the evidence that convicted if you can, if you if you were to hold that evidence today up against today's standards, does it still pass muster? And is there something that, that new techniques or new investigations could be done now, which which haven't been done for whatever reason? Okay, so it's the kind of things that would lead to a miscarriage of justice. So things like contamination or fabrication of evidence, destruction of the evidence, misidentification of a person false confessions, corrupt judges and judicial misconduct. Have I sort of exhausted the list or is there many more things? Well, I think that a lot of things that you've pointed to there are things which may may happen in some cases. No case ever in, involves yeah. all of those things and, and often cases aren't as clear-cut as that. It may not be corruption per se by whomever, police officer or whatever it might be. It, it might not be that. It might be that there was tunnel vision which, which meant that investigations that should have taken place haven't taken place. So I, I worked in a case uh, I used to, uh, I was a producer at the uh, at the BBC for for many years, and I spent a lot of time working on the Rough Justice programme, which was one of the um, the TV industry's sort of last fantastic programmes um, about wrongful convictions. So we would have people in prison write to us, we would investigate the cases, um, and if we found solid new evidence that showed somebody really should should have their case back at appeal, then a programme was broadcast. So the last last programme, it was my, the training ground, to be honest, for me personally, for the okay. work that I do today. Um, so the last case that I worked on when I was at that programme was a, a young man called Barry White. He'd been convicted of murdering his girlfriend. Uh, we received a um, a letter at the programme not long after he'd been convicted. I went out to Milton Keynes where his family lived and went into a room and I thought I was going to go and meet two or three people from his family but walked into a room of about 15 or so people, lots of family and friends all sort of crammed in a room, you know, just desperately trying to do something because they believed that Barry couldn't have committed the murder because he was just the sort of person that wouldn't. They just instinctively believed him. Now we, we found the investigation that I did on that case over for three years with a very small team. It was me and a, a reporter, Mark Daly, who's a Panorama producer, uh, a reporter now. Um, we worked on that case for a long, long time. Um, 
And we we found that in that case, it wasn't so much that there had been deliberate corruption or or something or deliberate contamination. It was just that the police investigation was misguided. They had it in their minds from a very early stage that Barry White, the boyfriend of the murder victim, had killed the victim. And so all of their investigations were focused on what was the evidence that would prove their theory. And that meant that they ignored some tests that could really show objectively whether he'd done it. And they had um, only focused on on sort of try, trying to find stuff that would support them. Um, so when, when we came to the case, and, and ultimately what happened in that case, I mean, this work took very nearly 10 years in total oh to complete. The short version of the 10-year <laughs> yeah. story is that we investigated the case. We found grounds to show that there was serious cause for concern. That went forward to the Court of Appeal. The the conviction, murder conviction was quashed. Barry was released. His friend who'd been convicted of perverting the course of justice, helping dispose the body, his conviction was quashed. Their nightmare was over. And then in the meantime... I'd set up Inside Justice and I'd so we, we had this advisory panel of experts and, and one of our experts, a forensic scientist, she was working at an independent laboratory at that time and she was tasked with going back to the original trial evidence to try and find out whether or not those original convictions were sound and whether there was evidence to show that anybody else had committed the murder. Um, and ultimately, her work identified the real killer who was then convicted. Wow. And so, honestly, genuinely, it's my my proudest moment in my my professional life because if our work had not established that Barry and Two Keith, the the two guys in prison, were really innocent, they shouldn't have been there, then the investigation would never have begun to look at, well, who had really done that? And so the truly dangerous person would never have been taken off the streets. And all the time that Barry and his friend Keith were in prison wrongly, for this other guy who's called Shahid al-Ahmed, the guy who truly committed the murder. Um, all the time that Barry had served time for his conviction, you know, when when Ahmed should have been in jail, Barry was really the one in, in, in prison. All that time that left Ahmed free to commit other offences against other women. Absolutely. Was there any compensation? What are the rules around that in England and Wales? Well, Barry and Keith did get compensation, but only when Ahmed was convicted. So when they first had their convictions quashed, they were effectively told you can't have compensation because the, because the, the way that the law is set out now, you, you have to be able to show that, 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 that you are factually innocent. And so having your conviction quashed is okay. not good enough. There've been, there's been Supreme Court hearings um, around this, decisions around this, most recently in two cases, called Victor Nealon and, and Sam Hallam. And basically what all of that sort of shakes down to is that the only way you're able to get compensation these days, even if you've spent your life in prison, half your life, 20 years in prison for something you haven't done, the only way you can get compensation is if somebody else is convicted of that crime that you serve time for. So when Tracy Alexander's work identified the real killer and when he was convicted, that meant that Barry and Keith could get compensation. But up until that point, they wouldn't have done so. Right. The difficulty with them not getting compensation is not just the the what are they supposed to live on and you know what about the fact that they've they haven't lived their lives for the last 5 10 years however long it might be and the impact on their on their mental health and their lives and their family and friends and all of that it's it's the compensation is a way that the state 
formally acknowledges that what has happened to these people was wrong. Absolutely. And you don't get that just with the conviction being quashed because when a conviction is quashed, there's always a section of society that, that carries on thinking that actually maybe the conviction was sound and somebody's got off on some kind of technicality. Yeah, maybe the element of doubt is still there. And I brought up some statistics, um, but only from the United States of America. And it said around 5% of prisoners are innocent. Of course, difficult to tell, but that was the sort of rough stat. And that roughly 4% of people on death row are actually innocent. It seems quite high, really. But do we have any statistics for England and Wales? Well, it's very difficult to get reliable statistics, you know, but something that's properly factually bottomed out, if you like. You know, the, yeah. I mean, the way they've done it in, in America is that they have conducted polls with people throughout the criminal justice system. So not just from one little section of it that might be more likely to say everyone's innocent or, yeah. you know, or nobody's yeah. innocent. But, they've, they, you know, they've done it in that way. Um, in, in England and Wales, what I know is that um, is that less than 1% of convictions for serious crimes are overturned at appeal. So what that tells us is it's exceptionally difficult to get a conviction quashed, even if it is wrongful, um, once the conviction is in. It doesn't really tell us how many people are actually innocent. And I, and I, I don't really know what could be done that would, be, that would properly provide that statistic in any kind of reliable one. But it is very hard to get a conviction quashed. And that's the thing that I think troubles me the most in that I know since since setting up the charities and setting up Inside Justice that it is harder now to get a wrongful conviction quashed than it was in the days of the infamous wrongful conviction. So in the sort of mid to late 90s, there was a rush of, of wrongful convictions that got a lot of high profile attention from the newspapers. So if you think about the Birmingham Six and Guildford Four, um, Stephen Kisco, those sorts of cases got a lot of coverage on news reports and TV stations. If you're interested in this kind of stuff at all you should go on youtube and search up things like the release of the birmingham six there's an an absolutely amazing bit of footage where the strand which for anyone not familiar with london it's it's um two lanes of traffic either way so you've got two you know really majorly busy road it's been closed to traffic and it is absolutely thronging with members of the public most of whom don't know these people at all, don't know the prisoners. They are there because these cases have just got so much attention through the media over the years. When those wrongful convictions were quashed, there was then a royal commission that looked at what had gone wrong in the criminal justice system because the public confidence had been so shaken that it was thought there should be a royal commission. And and that was the the last royal commission that we had just before Boris Johnson's government announced one at the end of last year. So, so yeah. you know, it's, it's a, a long time for these things to come. So the Royal Commission came and one of the outcomes was a recommendation that, that the decision for whether a conviction should be sent back to the Court of Appeal should be taken away from government ministers, which is how it used to be done, and put into the hands of an independent body, the Criminal Cases Review Commission. So that's what we have now. And that was seen as a huge step forward. You know, what progress that we've now taken the the decision away from a government minister who will be thinking about re-election. And, you know, is this going to be a good thing for me to suggest that a case might go back to the Court of Appeal or not into the hands of of an independent body? But I can tell you that you talk to anybody who works in this field, sister 
barrister, expert, you know, prisoner, that it is harder now to get a, a wrongful conviction quashed than it was when those awful miscarriage of justice cases were happening. So we've taken a really massive backward step, which is which should be to the shame of the criminal justice system, you know, throughout. That's a massive detrimental step. Do you think that's to do with a lack of funding or do you think it's to do with the fact that our prisons are now sort of, you know, a lot fuller? Um, what do you what do you attribute it to? I think it's to do with the fact that it has become much, much harder to access information and to access evidence. So any time before about 2000, 2005, maybe 2010, that, you know, up until about that kind of time, if you were working on a wrongful conviction and you thought, OK, well, let's see if we can get our hands on the old exhibits and let's get some new forensic tests done or let's ask the police if we can look at the old papers and go through everything and see if there's any reason to believe this person might be telling the truth or not when they say they're innocent. Um, in the old days, you would get that material and you would be able to do the work, whether that's a journalist or a, a solicitor or a barrister or the prisoner with their family campaign group. You would be able to get it and you would be able to test that evidence. Now we can't. Why? The massive difference has come from a case called Nunn, which was a case in the Supreme Court. So Kevin Nunn, and, and Kevin is one of our cases. We've worked on Kevin's case for a long time at Inside Justice and there's good reason to think that, that a lot of new scientific work should be done. So good basis for thinking he is genuinely protesting his innocence. Before the case came to Inside Justice, a solicitor had worked on it and had asked for disclosure, had asked for access to lots of information in the case. The official owners of all of that information and, and the material and the exhibits are the police force that investigated it. So, so they're the ones who officially own the stuff. Um, the solicitor in, in Kevin Nunn's case had asked for the material and the police force had just said, no, you can't have it. And they just point blank refused. Now, my kind of working hunch on why that might have been is that it was Suffolk Constabulary, which is a police force that doesn't have a, a very high murder rate. And I, I just have a sneaking suspicion that they probably weren't that familiar with what the process was if material was asked for in a case. Um, certainly, officially, the, the police force complained that the solicitor was asking for far too much and they didn't want to hand the stuff over and they, they it would take too much time and effort in order to hand it over and that it was inappropriate to hand stuff some stuff over, they said, because the victim's family had a right to think that, you know, when the trial finished, that was the end of it and, and there would be no more investigations. The white man was in prison and that would be the end of it. But what all of that meant was that there then became this kind of legal tussle between Kevin Nunn's legal team at that time and the police force. And they just battled it out between the courts until it got all the way up through the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court was then asked to decide whether or not the prisoner and his representatives had a right to have this material. And that was a really difficult decision for the Supreme Court to answer because, you know, they didn't want to give carte blanche to anybody in prison that says, I want access to all of my material again, because it would mean that the criminal justice system would get snarled up. You know, there was a danger that you would sort of have this sort of floodgate situation where everybody starts asking for everything and, and it would just become unmanageable. And so the Supreme Court set out a really detailed judgment that essentially said there's no automatic right to have that, that 
that anyone in prison who's protesting their innocence should get the stuff, whatever it might be, a forensic swab or access to papers or whatever it might be. There's no automatic right to it. We have the CCRC, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which has the sort of statutory authority to demand the stuff from police forces. But nevertheless, it's not in anybody's best interest that the only people can get it is the government funded body. So if you have a properly reasoned argument um, showing, you know, good good reasons for why material should be handed over to the prisoner's representatives, then that material should be shared. The problem is that police forces haven't interpreted the judgment in that way. They, The police forces up and down the country, 43 police forces all over England and Wales, have individually said, hmm, actually, I think this non-judgment is now telling me that I don't have to hand the stuff over. And so if I don't have to hand it over, I'm not going to. And so therefore, that has effectively meant that in the old days, material would have been handed over, but now it's not. Okay. Nobody gets it. And that is the thing that's caused the the biggest problem. And how many people within your organisation do you sort of work with at any one time? Because it sounds like, you know, taking on a case can be sort of multiple years. So how many people have you helped to prove their innocence? And how many people would you work with on any given week or month? Inside Justice was set up in 2010 on a very small scale, I have to say, at that stage. I mean, it was it was sort of, you know, a, one woman and a bit of part-time help with a gradually growing organisation to become the, 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 the charity which, that it is now, which is much bigger. But since 2010, Inside Justice has had 1,500 applications from people in prison, um, which is a huge amount. But, you, you know, you need to understand that a lot of those really aren't the kinds of things that we can help with at all. So then, and in those instances, then we say to people, okay, you might want to go to this organisation or or here's here's some solicitors who are dealing with your specific area, Uh, try them. At this particular time, we have 22 open cases. So they are cases where we have done a significant amount of work. We have or we are trying to get new forensic work commissioned. Uh, We've gone and spoken to witnesses. We've gone to crime scenes. We've, you know, we've really got under the skin of the case. So we have 22. And I would say that 22 is probably average for us. Okay. It can quite often be that you, you know, we might work on a particular case spending weeks, months trawling through paperwork on a specific case. But then you get it to a stage where we think, like, we know this is what needs to be done. And then it's into the kind of like into the long grass in a way of actually trying to make that happen. Um, which is which can be really difficult. We've made submissions to the independently funded government body that has the power to refer convictions, the CCRC, in uh, nine cases. And some of those we are still waiting for answers on. So the system is that we, we get cases in, we do our work to see whether or not we believe that somebody has a you know, good case for saying, yes, this should be reheard by the Court of Appeal. We then draft those submissions that have to go through, whether it's to the Court of Appeal directly or whether it's to the government-funded body that can refer to the Court of Appeal. We we draft those submissions. Um, the, the legal members of our panel draft those. So we're making it possible then for those people to get, the, to get legal advice, um, which they otherwise wouldn't be able to have, wouldn't be able to secure because there isn't legal aid funding for it these days. We've had four cases which have been heard at the Court of Appeal. One of those was was early on in 2012, which was unsuccessful. Um, and 
you know, I mean, I suppose I would say this because because I, you know, I was very much involved with that case. But I, I honestly and genuinely believe that if our case had been heard in, say, uh, 1995 or 2002, it would have been successful. But it was heard in 2012 and right. it wasn't. And that says something about the way that the system, the criminal justice system has changed and the way the Court of Appeal responds to cases. It says more about that than it does about the merits of our case. We had a, a case which was in the um, heard at the Court of Appeal earlier this year. Anybody who's convicted of anything gets the right, in a Crown Court, gets the right to appeal. Um, you normally have to do that within 28 days of your conviction coming in. So normally the kind of cases that are going to appeal within 28 days, and they're called within-time cases, uh, normally those cases are heard on some kind of technicality. You know, the judge got something wrong with the way that he summed up evidence to the jury. Uh, some, something like that, 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 that something happens during that trial process where the um, the barristers involved on behalf of the, of the defendant will clock it straight away and think, ah, if we if we if this goes the wrong way and the guilty verdict comes in, we've probably got a, a, a ground of appeal with that and we can work it up. So everybody has that automatic right. So the way that the process works is that Normally, if if you have if you believe you have grounds of appeal, that goes forward to a single judge, and that's heard as they call on the papers. If the single judge says yes, okay, you're in business, you've got a good ground of appeal there, then it can be heard properly. If it doesn't, if the single judge says no, I don't think there's anything in what you're saying, then you can renew that, and it can go to a full a full uh, panel of three court of appeal judges, and they can then decide whether you've got grounds to appeal. All of that part of the process is just deciding whether you've got a good argument. It's not deciding whether your argument wins or not. It's just deciding if you've got a good argument in the first place. And there are penalties. If somebody gets a, a knockback on, from the single judge and the single judge says, no, I'm sorry, there's nothing in what you're saying. I, d I don't think you've got a good, a good argument here. And the person in prison says, no, I'm going to renew it. I'm going to go to the full court and ask for it to be heard. If the full court then says, no, we agree with the single judge, you're not going forward, they can have time added on to their sentence. And that's designed into the system to sort of just put people off giving it a whirl, you know, having yeah. a bit of a go just in case. So with most of the cases that come to us, most people have had their first automatic go and they've lost and they are you know, then looking for something over and above that. And if you're going to find something over and above, that really is only probably going to be that there is some some piece of new evidence, new forensic evidence or something which, um, which for whatever reason hasn't been heard properly by the Court of Appeal in the first place. We had a case, it's a, a man called David Rees, who received a 19-year sentence for playing a part, it was said, in a massive drugs conspiracy. The huge quantities of, of heroin and cocaine that were being brought into the country. And we were contacted by his solicitor. So his solicitor had worked on his trial. She was absolutely devastated when the guilty verdict came in. Very much believed, uh, alongside trial counsel, that he wouldn't be convicted and, and that he'd get a not guilty verdict. And the jury really struggled to come up with a verdict in his case. They made their minds up pretty quickly on everybody else, but they could not decide whether our man David was innocent or not. And But eventually they came in um, with a, a majority guilty verdict. So by the skin of the teeth, he, he was found guilty and got 
19 years. Uh, so his trial solicitor came to us and said, look, you know, I totally believe in his innocence. This is the one that's keeping me awake at night. I've been doing this work for a long time now. Don't usually think that people are innocent, to be honest, if they've been found guilty. But with this man, I, I, I really, really do. But she couldn't work on the case anymore to any great extent because legal aid had run out. So, you know, she's got a working for a firm that requires her to... They've got their overheads to pay. They're not a charity. So she couldn't work on the case to any great extent. So she asked us to take it on. We worked on it. We keep records of how much expert time is sort of spent on each case. And we worked out that we'd spent around about 150 hours of time by experts completely for free on this case, which was, a you know, a huge amount for that individual to try and secure from a prison cell when he hasn't got two pennies to rub together, you know, to to pay anyone privately. And we got the case referred back to the Court of Appeal. So we, we went to the Court of Appeal, they listened to our grounds and they said, yes, OK, you can be heard before the full court. It was, you know, a hugely emotional day. We've we've made a um, a short film about the about the case and it's on our website that, that people can go and find if they go on to insidejustice.co.uk and then look at the Our Cases drop down, you'll see the David Reese case and then there's a, um, a short film on there that that shows what happened with the case i'd just be interested to know because um it's so fascinating but i imagine are you sort of slightly seen as a thorn in the side to the other agencies for example like the police and the courts i very much hope not i i really hope not I mean, we, we we try very hard not to be seen in that and not to be that yeah because i don't think that's particularly helpful to anyone but you know well, i mean no. We've always been very clear that we are not a placard-waving campaigning organisation. You know, we don't we don't say, "Oh, I'm sh- this man must be innocent," and go out campaigning on behalf of that individual because, because you know, we basically think that the criminal justice system works well most of the time for most of the people Mm. and there are some really valuable safety nets there which you know which set out what should happen in different parts of the process what we identify though is that there are of course there are failings any system that involves human beings will have problems within it there will be difficulties because it's a system full of human beings that's the way that the world works and so what we try and do is we try and work collaboratively and supportively with organizations within the criminal justice system so that we can make it better for everybody so we try really hard to work closely with police forces to improve their systems so that the so mistakes aren't made. We worked for a very long time on a case called Roger Kearney, again, on our um, website. You can find details about the case. We worked, I, I mean, I've worked on the case um, now. We, we first came into us in 2011. So for nine years, we've been through various stages with this case. And... You know, it, it, this this poor man is still in prison, and and I would I'd say, you know, I mean, this is a, a strange phrase to use in a way, but I'd say through no fault of his own. I mean, obviously, if he's guilty, it's <laughs> clearly is yeah. through his own fault. But but he's in prison through no fault of his own. I say because there were exhibits that were that were collected during that case when the the murder first took place that were really carefully collected in by all the professionals involved so you know pathologists and scientists and police officers they'd all worked really hard to collect all the evidence that could show the identity of the killer and there are procedures and there there's a, a the criminal procedure investigation act the code of practice which flows from that sets out what should happen to that material um before during the course of the police investigation 
and subsequently. So we have all of these very carefully thought out procedures that are there that basically tell police forces, you keep all of this material until this person is released from jail at the earliest, in, in murder cases, until they're released. In Roger Kearney's case, he's always protested his innocence. He has always asked for every single forensic test that could be done, that could re reveal the identity of the killer to be done. He's offered to put money up. He hasn't got a, a lot of money, but he worked hard. He was a man in his 50s when he was convicted and he, you know, he had savings from over the years. So he had, he had some money and said, I will sell what possessions I have left. I will sell my much-loved motorbike um, that's currently in my daughter's garage waiting for me to be released I'll sell it if I can just get the forensic work done to show who's committed this crime you know all the kinds of things that instill confidence in me to think that's you know okay let's let's get that work done and see objectively scientifically who's carried out this murder now what we found in Roger Kearney's case is that material which should have been kept by Hampshire Constabulary um, the investigating police force uh, has been either lost or it's been it's, it may have been contaminated because material from the victim has been stored in open packaging with stuff from from the man in prison so you can't tell what's contamination and you know what's not and things have been destroyed really important things that were collected so carefully by the experts that could now objectively identify the murderer have been destroyed by that force. Right. So that's nothing to do with crime scene management, is it? Are you talking about sort of later on how they hold the evidence? Absolutely. The crime scene management was very good. The experts did, did their work, you know, really fantastically well at the time. Let me give you an example. The, the poor victim in this case was found, she'd been murdered and she was found in the boot of her own car. When the pathologist was called to, to go and view the body and take samples from it, they were very careful to take what they call one-to-one -one tapings from every every inch of the outside layer of the victim's clothing. Um, they, they did so at the time. This is back in 2010. They did so at the time because they thought, uh, well, hang on a minute, we might be able to get fibre work. You know, we might be able to see if fibres are transferred from the attacker to the victim. So they, they took them. At the, and it's basically a one-to-one -one taping is that you basically put down what's like a piece of sellotape onto a surface and you lift it off and you put it onto a, an acetate sheet and then you all the material that has come off on the sticky side you've collected and it's there waiting to be tested. So they did, they did it at the time thinking that fibre analysis might be quite useful. Um, they didn't develop that. But now when we come to look at the case, you know, here we are years later, DNA work has, has developed so brilliantly well that we would be able to now look at those tapes to see if there was DNA also picked up, touch DNA from the person who put the, the, the victim in the boot of her car. So the, the stuff was gathered by the scientists with one purpose in mind, but scientific developments have moved on so fantastically well that now we could do it for something else. And, you know, it's not just can we look at the DNA, of any DNA on that surface. We can also do now do DNA work now that would just target the Y chromosome. So just the male DNA, let's assume it's a male attacker as it usually is. You know, let's just find the male DNA there to see who put him in the boot of a car. And there would be areas that, that scientists would target for very sound reasons you know the armpits underneath the, the 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 backs of the legs these are the areas where you are probably likely to come into contact if you are lifting a body and putting it into a car 
all of that material should have been kept post-conviction in storage. Criminal Procedure Investigation Act 1996 sets out the, the requirement to do so. The Code of Practice says how long for and in, you know, in, in what circumstances and what situation, all the rest of that, that kind of detail. But, the, but they haven't done it. It's been lost. It's been destroyed. Sounds like there's no way out. For Roger Kearney, the man in prison, there's absolutely no recourse for him at all, which is what makes me really angry and makes me think we have got to be able to change this system because there should, that, that objective evidence now should be tested and would just tell us. And if the guilty person is the man in prison, happy days. We all walk away. We are, you know, the, the parole board knows how to deal with that individual because they can see that for all these years, Years, he was saying he was innocent, so he's you know he's he's adding to the crime by by lying about that and by being manipulative, or or not. But whatever you know, the system can deal with it. So all we're left now with is a situation where the police force, which had a responsibility, a statutory duty to keep that material safe, has failed, and there is absolutely no recourse. So to begin with, we we went to the original police force and and we uh, we asked them for the material. Initially, we were told that material had been retained and, we, and that they were wondering what to do with it. A submission then went into the independent body that investigated the case and they discovered that actually the, the vast majority of the material had been lost or destroyed. There was no recourse then from that independent body that there were no there were no recommendations for the police force, there was no disciplinary on the individual officers who had taken this course. Uh, there were explanations that, that were asked for so the, the police force said some of the stuff was destroyed because it had uh, human blood on it, uh, hazardous material, which the forensic scientists on our advisory panel would just laugh at. I mean, they, they would say, that's what an evidence bag is for. Well, <laughs> that's, yeah, what, that's, that's what evidence. forensic scientists... <laughs> exactly. That's what forensic scientists do all the time. We put this dangerous, you know, stuff that's got bodily fluids on it, we put it into, into bags to make sure that everybody is kept safe. Um, so there was, there was no... There was absolutely no acknowledgement from the police force that some that they had done something that was wrong other than to say well the senior investigating officer wasn't um, wasn't consulted and should have been but that's it nothing more we made a complaint to the um, independent office of the police complaints and again they said it's outside of our room we can't help the IOPC said we can't help you because you are making this complaint to us about these failings um, about something that happened more than 12 months ago to wow. which we said well, well of course it happened more than 12 months ago we didn't know it had happened for the first five years that's not a very long time either well, no, you it's know not. when you have no. people languishing in prison who are innocent you know that really is and I don't know how often any of our listeners actually sort of think about that because you know we sort of presume everybody in prison is guilty but then you know there's there is a group of people who are completely and entirely innocent and might be in for years and years and years and some who might never get out actually certainly in America Absolutely. Oh, and, and certainly here too. Absolutely here. I, I mean, with the cases that we have at Inside Justice, you know, I can look at our cases and think, 
if the material that would objectively be able to show whether or not this person is innocent or guilty was released to us, released to experts, somebody objective, if the decision was taken away from the original investigating police force and a decision was made by a separate body as to whether this material should be released and if that material was then tested, we could get answers on most of these cases within, within three months. We would be able to. We would be able to tell objectively whether there is new evidence or not. But what happens in cases is that they go on for years. So the very first submission that we put into the independent government-funded body that decides whether cases should go back to the Court of Appeal or not, the submission on that case was made in 2012. We are still waiting for a decision in that case. We right. the Roger Kearney case, the one I've just the one I talked about when so much evidence had been lost. We started working on that in 2011. A submission went in to the independent body in 2013 and it was rejected in 2018. You know, and these things take years to make very little progress. Mm. And that is a stain on the entire criminal justice system because in most of these cases, if there was the will to let the evidence be released and reviewed and objectively questioned, then there would be definitive answers within a space of months. Yeah, and it's a shame that people see that part of the work as maybe being sort of, not sort of beneath them, but they sort of, people get defensive, don't they? Instead of, as you said, sort of thinking, well, there is a possibility here that he could be innocent, so let's find out as quickly as possible. And if he's guilty, um, well, he's in the right place or she's in yeah. the right place and then we can move on. Yeah, I'm sure funding does come into that, which we touched on earlier. But yeah. we have now, our, our head of casework at, at Inside Justice is a a, um, a a former senior detective. So he was a detective at the at the Metropolitan Police, Damien Alain, for 30 years. And, and I'm really thrilled that he's our head of casework now because he, he brings really sort of, you know, in good investigative um, experience and judgment to whether there is more that could be done in cases. And, and to be honest, when we appointed him, I questioned whether it was right to have such a long in the tooth detective working, <laughs> you know, in such a, a key role within the charity. Yeah. But I was just so, so impressed with um, his personal sort of uh, sense of transparency and want and, and objectivity, and also his knowledge of how cases you know should work and what work would have been done that can then lead us to the point of thinking, okay, is there something that we can we can really do here? So, of the cases that we have currently at the Criminal Case Review Commission, the body that has the has uh, and the the authority to refer cases to the Court of Appeal, we've had nine of those cases to that body in all since the charity was set up. So virtually one a year, I guess, on average. Um, with all of those cases, in every single one of those cases, there is work that that the experts at our advisory panel, who are simply world leaders in their own area of, of specialism, but in each of those cases, there's work that those experts could have done, which the criminal justice system somehow gets bogged down in not letting happen. Right. And that that is that is a that is a, a terrible shame because it, all it does is fuel this sort of suspicion that there is something rotten at the heart of it, which led to that complete uh, catastrophic lack of confidence, public confidence in the criminal justice system in the late nineties. You know, which were on the back of the Birmingham Six and Guildford Four cases. So we've come full circle, and we are now repeating the mistakes of history. 
Well, thank goodness that Inside Justice exists in that case. And out of interest, are there many other organisations like Inside Justice that do this type of work? There are few and far between, and they are getting fewer. I mean, at one stage, there was a tremendous group of solicitors, mainly law firms, who did this kind of work. So even if funding was difficult, they would be able to do pro bono work. So you would have a, a a firm of solicitors who did lots of different work across the criminal justice system. But they would also do this kind of very hard appeal work. And they are increasingly, they're vanishingly rare. You know, there are one or two of them still out there, but but hardly any. There's a charity uh, which was known as the Centre for Criminal Appeals, now known as Appeals, um, which does this work. But but they're focusing, although they started off doing the kind of what I call the heavy end of miscarriages of justice, you know, the murder cases and such. They are increasingly doing sort of magistrates court work, which is, you know, as as important and has an impact on uh, a negative impact on people's lives if they've been uh, wrongly convicted of something but we're looking at the other end of things more than they are I think so in that regard we are unique we are absolutely unique in having this permanent advisory panel of experts which meets quarterly in terms of discussing all cases but much more frequently than that we have sort of mini advisory panel meetings so Kevin Nunn case again on the on the website we've worked through a, an entire forensic strategy on that case of what ought to be done and in order and to be able to do that our experts are coming together frequently to go through all of the old trial papers to say well you know actually nobody has ever tested this particular swab and that's the thing that should be done now what we need is for the next stage is for us to be able to just get on and do that work yeah that's the thing that we have to achieve that's the biggest hurdle we're trying in two ways to address that in terms of police forces no longer releasing evidence we've been working very closely on a a protocol so we called together lots of partner organizations within this kind of area So organisations like the Law Reform Group uh, Justice. Uh, So we called lots of people together. We had a roundtable discussion around the experience of people throughout the criminal justice system that police forces just aren't releasing stuff post-conviction anymore. We drafted a protocol... Uh, which would set out for police forces that this is what the non-judgment actually says. So this is when it's appropriate to release things post-conviction and this is when this isn't. That protocol has now been endorsed by the government-funded body, the Criminal Cases Review Commission that refers cases, which was a big plus, a big tick in terms of, of their endorsement of it. And we've very recently been having... Uh, discussions with the National Police Chiefs Council in order for them to adopt this and then process that out to all of their police forces. Because every time there's a situation when a prisoner or his his representatives who's protesting their innocence wants access to to something, whatever it might be, every time a police force says, no, you can't have it, that sucks in thousands of pounds worth of, of their own resources in fighting that. You know, when, if ever, if, if so, if somebody wants to get hold of their material from a police force, it will be the police force solicitors, police force lawyers, who are dealing with that request in, in tandem with the which with whatever whichever individual police officers investigated the case in the first place. So that 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 legal department is then using a huge amount of resources to come up with a decision on whether you can't or can't have it. And I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the time these days, the answer is no, you can't have it. That then, of course, is challenged by the prison's representative, which then takes it back to the police force. Right. And then those those negotiations 
negotiations, they go on for years and years and years. So in our Roger Kearney case, where most of the exhibits have been lost, destroyed or contaminated by the police force that had responsibility to keep them, there are some, a couple of, of key things that have been retained, which the police force won't release to us, to Inside Justice, to the charity. This relates to uh, CCTV footage. So the negotiations um, around that footage has gone on for years. We started asking for it directly in 2017 um, and the police force, ever since the police force has been saying, no, you can't have it. And so that then has gone between our lawyers and their lawyers to the point where we've taken legal action and that's now waiting to be heard. And when will that be heard? Well, we're waiting for dates. So we've, okay. we've ha already had one hearing um, at the administrative court, which we lost on a completely legal technical point about whether or not it was appropriate for it to be heard in that court. So nothing to do with the merits of whether the stuff should be handed over or not, but just to do with, with how and where the court should sit. So now we're taking that to the Supreme Court mm. um, and we, we, you know, we're just in a, in a waiting game and I've, I've absolutely no idea when that decision will come. But my point is that that takes up a huge amount of resources from the police force in fighting the action. It takes up a huge amount of resources from us and our lawyers who are basically doing this work for free because they think it's so important that somebody should and somebody has to. And it's taking up time of the Supreme Court and of the Administrative Court. And of course, you know, not least forgetting, Roger Kearney is sitting in prison waiting for a decision to be made. If the material was released to us, we could turn it around and get an answer within weeks yeah. on whether or not this is going to assist the courts or not. We are working now in collaboration with police forces to raise awareness about what the statutory requirements are that are placed upon them when it comes to, you know, what do they do with stuff post-conviction? And this is really important because I think police forces are in a difficult place. You know, they work hard in investigation. They think they've got the right person. They've got a huge amount of material that they need to deal with. Um, the conviction comes in. Everybody is euphoric and that is, you know, as far as they're concerned, the hard work has been done. But of course, if somebody has genuinely been wrongly convicted, then the, then the material must be safeguarded. And there is, as I say, this statutory duty on police forces to keep stuff. So my message to police forces is that they need to be aware of the Criminal Procedure Investigation Act and the duties that are placed upon them from the code of practice that flow from it. And basically, in a nutshell, it boils down to this. If somebody has been committed of the most serious category of crime, there is a duty on all police forces to retain all material in that case until that person is released from prison. If you remember only one thing about what do you do with stuff post-conviction, remember that anything doesn't matter whether it's copies of interviews, copies of transcripts, whether it's swabs, whether it's personal effects, whether it's material, there is a duty placed upon police forces to keep everything in cases until the, until the prisoner is released from prison. That's what you need to think about and that's what you need to make sure that, that you have. There will be times in cases where 
police forces may feel that it's appropriate to release stuff back to to maybe the victim's family or what, what have you. Maybe there's a personal effect that's of sentimental value that the family particularly wants back. And in those circumstances, it may be right to return some limited things back to victims' families. But the most important thing to remember is that there is a statutory duty on all police forces that everything should be kept until somebody is released from prison if they've been convicted of murder. If a police force is not going to do that, they need to share that information with the prisoner and with that person's representatives. And they need to document why the decision has been made to destroy or release something. And nothing at all should be released until they have had confirmation back from the prisoner and their representative. Thank goodness for Inside Justice. It's an organisation I know well and I've been lucky enough to sit on those expert panels and it's just fascinating and, you know, the work that you do is um, absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much for coming on the pod and uh, good luck with the rest of your work. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.